having a contingency fund or plan is a worthwhile discussion. You're listening to the She Renovates podcast. You're listening to She Renovates, the podcast for women who want to renovate to create an income and a life they love. Well, hello everyone, it's Bernadette back with another episode of She Renovates and today I have a return guest in Ryan Goodwin. Now, Ryan has a construction and development company in Melbourne and he's also built a sizable portfolio himself using small development as a vehicle for that. As I know, small development is often the natural progression from renovating in order to seek a higher profit margin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, Ryan. I've got Ryan Goodwin from Mode Developments. If you've heard Ryan on an earlier episode, he's based in Melbourne. He has a company that pretty much does everything, development, renovating, new builds, whatever. I thought that I might interview him on the whole construction and development scenario. The reason being is because I get a lot of questions about renovators found a block of land and they think that they might be able to subdivide it and what do they need to consider with costs. Now, so I think that's a good topic to talk about. The other reason is because Ryan has built a portfolio using the duplex model. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, thanks, Bernadette. I have my portfolio or the growth in my portfolio has been off the back of splitters or battle axe blocks, as you might know, in Melbourne. So one into two, one into three, land sales, flipping, renovations, building equity a lot. And probably one of my most favourite is to still maybe turn one into two, maybe for some of your listeners looking at their first opportunity, it might be a great idea where it's lowering some risk and it's more achievable to many where you would renovate to build equity or manufacture equity in the front home and put that new home on the back to live in yourself or have an investment or to sell to cover costs or make profit. Awesome. That's something that I often say to our community that it is a great way to get more equity into the deal quickly rather than having to just wait for it to grow organically. Let's talk about the scenario that I I spoke to a student this morning. She rang and said, my son's found this block of land and it's in Queensland. It's got subdivision potential. I can subdivide and put a single dwelling on it, but it's only 300 square metres. So what do I need to do about costing? You do have the subdivision costing, but in terms of how would you look at that situation, I guess is what I'm going to ask you. Yeah, great. Look, what we get asked very similar questions all the time, whether it be in our business or me personally, like yourself, working in this space for many years. I'm the go-to guy for most uh, friends and family and that sort of thing and uh, savvy investors and renovators. Firstly, it's understanding what the property has available to it. Like you said, checking with council or speaking to someone who can check for you the res code or in Melbourne it's a res code or 
effectively the bylaws in a local shire that dictate what's on the title. And that might be something like a landscape overlay, heritage overlay, building envelope. There's thousands of them and each state are very different. So I'm aware we've got a national audience listening. It's I may not answer every point today, but the principles remain the same. So checking first to see the feasibility on that block of land or the potential for it is, of course, executed first before making any offers, of course. So it might be speaking to the local town planners in the Shire office speaking to someone independently, even speaking to the local draft people or architect offices, perhaps if you're needing more localised knowledge, if it's not somewhere or location you're familiar with. I think once you do find out that there is an opportunity to have a sizable area that you don't have something like a, a single dwelling covenant or certain covenants on that property, which in our neck of the woods can take sometimes two, three, four years and up to 20 or 30 grand to remove. Potentially still worth it, especially if it's your family home and you're staying there long term and you want to build equity in years down the track. But yeah, assuming this is a commercial decision and a wealth creation vehicle for you with a clear timeline, you want to make sure you have all that information in front of you or having the right conversation to the right people. It's probably a great idea. It's the time where you might want to start building your team around you too by way of a great drafts person or architect or town planner and those advising or advisors who can be your go-to people for project one, two, and three. So I think before getting too carried away with it, being a bit of a property coach myself, I would always discuss the strategy in which you want to enter this. So what is your strategy? Is your strategy is the backyard of your family home and it's got great equity and you're going to hold on to it forever or you're going to put mum and dad into it or you want to move into it and then sell the front or is this something that will just remain an investment property or is this something you're looking more to flip? So you're looking to subdivide, build, keep one, sell two, keep both. I've done all of those. At this point, I should advise there's different uh, tax capital gains and GST implications to all of these scenarios. So it's also an early stage or a good time to be chatting with your friendly accountant. While you're doing that, make sure your accountant's someone who understands property because I've had the experience of many, I'm sure Bernadette have great ideas, strategies, put all their money and hard earnings to it to only find out no one told them they had a GST bill to pay or capital gains or something like that. And, and we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. Mm, I know, GST is an absolute pain. And the other thing, this is the thing, I, as well as the fact that I don't like paying fees, <coughs> is that if you sell one, you actually have to pay the GST on settlement so it's not once the whole deal's done they basically take it out on settlements i just want to recap this firstly strategy you know what we're both completely aligned on that because i absolutely and wholeheartedly agree with that so you want to be really clear about that the next thing is considering a property that you need to become familiar with the local planning laws so you understand the limitations i personally think someone that's new to this probably shouldn't be doing this work themselves. Like when your first couple of projects, you might want to engage someone to do this for you so that you can learn from them. I personally think there's too many risks for new players. Would you agree? 100%. I think if you think on a dollar value risk factor, there's a lot of skin in the game for these projects, a lot of money, a lot of cash flow equity required, a lot of upside and a lot of downside potentially. Whereas I know some of your clients and students might be in there renovating the kitchen or painting the wall, it's really easy to put a new coat of paint on that wall if it doesn't look any good. Yeah. Uh, by the time you've purchased the property settled and only too late to find out you can't do what you set out to do, it, it, it actually can be life shattering. So again, it's really great to partner with the right people. Advisors are really good to have and they're people that should be in your back pocket anyway and they'll help with your growth. 
but partnering with someone on your first project may well be someone like us. This is not why I'm saying it, but a builder who has the appetite for it, a builder that is actually a developer. Our business, for instance, has an in-house draft person, an architect, interior designers. So we actually manage all the documentation from the start. We'll help you do feasibility. We'll help you do the design and all the way through. It, it's okay if it's not a company like ours, but there are some others out there. And so if it's not a builder per se, it might be another kind of consultant or professional a lot of drafts people are architects. Also, you can pay fees to get involved with early for the feasibility, some cost association and planning, and then even to help you project manage or, or supervise whoever you're ultimately engaged to do the work. They all come with a different level of involvement from you, a little bit different costs as well. And sometimes it can still be disjoint by having one advisor or consultant up front, say an architect to do all that for you at some X cost then to bring in a builder and then all of a sudden there's a different operating procedure to work under. There's good and bad. I would suggest if you can find a business or company which are builders that can advise in feasibility, that have an appetite and experience in the space, that can actually produce the plans that are going to work, not just look sexy on paper. And, and I think some of the icing on the cake here is if you can get some savvy designers and builders on board, we can help you and show you deliberately how to manufacture equity by simplifying the build costs, simplifying the footprint, upgrading cosmetic finishes, really getting that wow factor and bang for buck, which I know you've got your PhD in Bernadette, so I'm sure you'd agree, but it's where you can get more for less effectively. Yeah. And sometimes when it comes to just designers, they don't often do that because they're not building themselves. So we find our combination of experience in our business really works well for our clients. But again, you'll, you'll need to work out whether you're working down one path with advisors one path with engaging designers to take you through that journey uh, journey is feasibility or maybe just getting in early with good builders that if it all goes well and they're a match for you, you can remain with them from step one all the way through to completion, which I suggest is probably worth considering because it minimizes the exposure to too many views, changes of management. You want people to be responsible. So I know in our experience, we are responsible from day one to the end. When you end up going through some consultants and then designers and then a builder, if there's something missed somewhere, guess what? It usually goes back to being blamed on the last person or someone missed it in the documentation. It's not the ethos we operate under or we like, but it's generally out there sometimes where the poor client's left saying, hang on, I didn't I ask for that thing, but it never got written down. So no one ever quoted it, which means it never got included. Then, you know, those sorts of things. Ultimately though, when it comes back to strategy, it's keeping in mind the end goal. So what is the end that you have in mind? And that's particularly trying to probably build wealth is the first thing. Now, if that's by keeping the property, building equity or selling it for profit, the journey is very similar. One strong message I'd say to your listeners is just be aware if your project is a commercial one to build wealth or to leave as an investment or to sell, try and really remove yourself from being emotionally attached. I'm sure, again, you've coached a lot of your students and clients Bernadette for this, but it's just about making the smart decisions, not the emotional ones. So you want to know what the market wants. You want to know how many bedrooms work. You want to know the outlook and the finishes and the style. And I won't go on anymore, making sure you meet the market. But I think the important thing would be to try and get as, as much help through the process as you can from the start. Yeah. And I think for a first time, it would really offer confidence from the start. By doing that once or twice, you might actually fall in love with your builder and do five or six more. Yeah. You might once ago, you know what, they were really smart. I really learned a lot. And now this time I know I can do it differently or myself or a different way. I couldn't agree more. Sometimes the project doesn't involve builders. Like I did one last year, which was the splitter. 
and we just sold off the block of land. In that instance, I found that the town planner was the key person. Yeah, and there's things that you can do because it just always amazes me that you really never get certainty around the project's viability until after you own it. I think that's the thing that people need to know when they're looking at subdivision and development. You'll generally have a pretty good idea that you're going to be able to do what you want to do, but you don't know what's under the ground and you can come unstuck pretty quickly if you're green. Yeah, I think to that point, Bernadette, and also if we're talking about a process, we're moving through the journey of of development. I've just written down in front of me here, the building process and some of those that I a point you just raised would be contingencies. Understanding that renovating is one thing, having a contingency fund or plan is a worthwhile discussion. When it comes to new builds, you would like to think that surely it's once it's out of the ground, it's pretty straightforward. And it is, but some of those unknowns, it's not often, but it's a very common thing to discuss or, or be aware of. Things like the soil type, what kind of footings or foundations, or if we dig up asbestos or contaminated soil that no one knew about, you didn't know yeah. about, we didn't know yeah. about. And so sometimes those, and, and, and standard building contracts usually allow for those costs to be passed back onto the client, of course, sometimes with margins. It's quite rare in my experience. It's rare enough that we don't see that happening much, maybe once every couple of years where there's rock or there's things hidden under the ground. And it's pretty crazy what we find, but it can happen. I know depending on the values or the type of builders, the culture of that builder, that's sometimes a, a really easy win for those yeah. builders. So they're the kind of things that I'm sure while your students are doing their due diligence through looking at referrals and recommendations, speaking to previous clients and builders, they're the kind of things that you want to get a real feel for and confirm that you're going to be comfortable. These are the the right values in these businesses. But some of those costs could be a contingency that I think should be considered. I get asked actually things like how much is it per square meter to build? How much contingency do we need? And there's, a, there's lots of different answers for all of these, but a contingency sometimes on a new board, you should probably always have, a, I'd say, 10 to 20 grand buffer zone, assuming you may spend it. That's not a, just to upgrade because you'd like to. I would always say minimum. Now, if we look at an average house build, again, we're a custom home builder, not a volume builder. So if, if we're looking at the normal pricing, not a cheap price, hmm. uh, you know, you could be spending anywhere from three fifty dollars to $500,000 on a new build. Yeah. If it, in, in Victoria, that depends if it's a single story, double story, how big and all that sort of stuff. I guess if you would argue that could be 5%, 3%, something like that. 5% would be the maximum, I would think. Yeah. But maybe 2 or 3%. I usually talk around numbers of if you could have 15 or 20 grand, just sitting in the account, cash, yours available or the bank's money available to you to draw on, it would likely get you through any uh, unforeseen, but also any of the grey area that you're really not confident on, especially your first time around, by the time the home's close to being built, the structure's up, the roof's on, you might be choosing your kitchen colours or whatever it may be, and you haven't spent any of that contingency. If you choose to, that's possibly the time where you might say, you know what, we're going to upgrade to the 900 cooktop or we're going to do waterfall ends on the, the island bench. Again, this is only if you believe the return on investments there and it's meeting the market you want and all that sort of thing. But I'd also like to think that in most cases, that contingency is not touched. And in fact, that's still there for you at the end of the project. So here's a question. What sort of contingency would you include in a development? So, Let's say you're doing the one into two. You've got a house on one and you're just doing the straight subdivision. What sort of contingency would you have on that? So if you're looking to do, I guess there's, you could talk around the development side of it, which yeah. would 
do two separate titles and and that point and yeah. then the build the the, the the points I raised just a moment ago probably talk to the house build yeah uh, I would be uh, saying yeah. 15 to 20 grand is for the house build sorry I yeah. should have explained that no 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 that was clear so if it was for the subdivision, I'm well aware that the question is not everyone would look to build. You may look to subdivide, put a fence up, do your driveway and move on. Yeah. And again, it depends on the shire and the state, of course. So again, in our area of, of, of Victoria, in the southeastern suburbs and eastern area, most of our shires expect us, if it's one into two and the driveways down the side of the house, they expect us to um, have solid surface driveways installed, stormwater or civil, so drainage for the driveway services supplied, electricity, gas, power, et cetera, water, sewer to the rear property. And so all those things are done so that if you are selling that block of land, those services are what we call assets are already on that property and available. They find you don't then sell a piece of land and then you've got two neighbours now forced to argue over ripping up a driveway or driving over the, the rose bush or where the fence is in the wrong place. So if you're talking of the subdivision only, there's obviously some costs in the design and consultancy side of things, looking at your driveway, fencing, perhaps services, those sorts of things. I'd be encouraging everyone to look at some general figures first for your feasibility. And before going any further, actually get firm fixed quotes from as many people as you need to, much like renovating a house, yeah. your drainage guys to quote, your fences to quote, your concreters to quote, your service providers, your retail people from those service companies can also offer you quotes over the phone. It is actually a little bit easy to do some of that homework yourself without getting too far down the track by just, it's going to take a couple of days in the office, some emails, some phone calls and some pestering, but we're all here to hustle, right? To, to yeah. make it work. So that's really where it comes to. So to answer your question, Bernadette, I don't necessarily see a lot of contingency needed for that part of the process because typically you're only doing maybe five or six stages. It might be land surveying, fencing, perhaps drainage or stormwater, services underground, perhaps concrete driveway and crossover. Usually what goes into preparing those blocks for sale. And then obviously a land surveyor comes back to effectively do your plan of subdivision and, and that goes back to your shire or your council um, or planners, that is, to also authorise and that's another cost. So with only five or six of those type of, or maybe a few more, but for those types of people engaged for the process, it should be an easy enough task to get some price points pretty clear before you really go too far with it. So that gives me confidence personally knowing that I don't really need a lot of contingency for that part of it. It's unlikely your fence will fall down, have to rebuild it. The drainage guy's got his machine there. It's his job to put it in the right spot. It's very unlikely I find at that stage that above and beyond a contingency. The project that we did last year, we had an interesting time. It all went reasonably well, but the town planner put us in contact with a civil engineer to design the sewer and so on. That engineer was pretty ordinary, just stuff like he designed the sewer to go diagonally across the block, okay? And this is the vacant block that we're going to sell. So it's, I was thinking if you didn't have a half a clue, you could get into a bit of trouble. And I think that's what you're talking about when you're saying work with a reputable builder that's okay for Melbourne because they've got you. We've got to look further afield. The other thing that happened, which was like really interesting, is there was a TPG pit and a pillar. Is Do they call them a pillar where they've got that sort of tower thing? Yep, yep, right yep. next to the driveway. Basically, council had approved where the driveway went. I think we might have rung them and said the actual pit was 
in the driveway. What do we need to do with that? And they said, oh, no, you'll just have to put a trafficable lid. It'll be $300. Just ring us when you're ready to go. Thankfully, we got that in an email because when we went back and rang them, they said, you should not have put that driveway there. You did not have approval to do it, blah, blah, blah. That thing needs to be moved. And that's a very long and expensive process. It's their words. So this is all with this wonderful engineer. But thankfully, we had it in writing and they couldn't do a thing about it. Wow. I think off the back of that, and um, I don't want to skim over too many scenarios I've been doing this for quite a long time now. That issue may be a rise for other people. And I think it's important, again, to go back to building your team. And it's very much like your students who are renovating homes every day. You found the painter you like and the cabinet maker you like or the carpet supplier, whatever it may be. Speak to a handful of plumbers and be aware all plumbers aren't drainage plumbers. You've got internal plumbers, roof plumbers, sanitary plumbers, drainage plumbers. Ask around. Jump on Facebook. Jump on socials. Ask your friends. Ask your network. Ask Bernadette and her team. Everyone's there to champion you. But there, there really is that due diligence. I've got some money in the bank. We own the backyard. We're going to make a killing here. You've got to earn it. I trust your students are all pretty much up for that challenge, Bernadette. I think really it's about knowing um, that you do need to be asking the questions. You do have a choice in which contract to use. You do have a choice in the engineer or the drainage guy or whatever it may be. And so meet with those people. Send them emails. Have conversations with them. And if anything smells wrong or weird, just move on to the next one. Ask for referrals. Look at their websites and and reviews, speak to their clients if you feel you need to, especially on the first one. No one's going to worry about it. What I find generally now, if I go back to being that guy, being that person, in fact, I've just come from a block on developing myself, actually putting a new home on for ourselves. I've just come back in from that. And we're doing things at the scale I've never done before. We've got some acreage and some huge rock walls and pretty cool things happening. And I'm a registered builder. It doesn't scare me, but it's not what I do every day. I'm very much a client or a customer, just like we're talking about it's doing that due diligence to make sure i'm getting the right answers the right budget to go back to your example bernadette i think if you had the right so the civil engineer might have made a mess of it but i would have loved to have hoped that maybe your drainage plumber perhaps or the guy doing the works on site in there was another problem (laughs) oh really (laughs) yeah so what i did was engage the town planner and then ask the town planner for recommendations for the engineer And so the town planner was fantastic. When you go and look at these people's websites and look at their reviews, they're all glowing. I think I had an inexperienced engineer. And what made me cross is I got, went back to the head guy and he basically washed his hands of it. We were fine, but he also recommended the earthworks and the drainage plumber. At that stage, I thought they were okay. And I discovered that the drainage plumber had left quite a lot out of the quote. And so we went with them and then discovered that it ended up being about double, which I'd already budgeted for. So that wasn't an issue. I think you can still do things the right way and end up. Mm -hmm. So building that team is critical. And I think probably the best way to do that is to find someone else that's developing and ask them who they use. Absolutely. And whether you were the, the person's a builder or a mum and dad, we actually get generally calls all the time for people I can't service or in different areas. We'll give them the time of day and say, hey, look out for this, call this person, or this is what you'll need to find in your own area. There are definitely people that are happy to help, whether it yeah. be the advisors, consultants. We're not in it to try and chase it down. We just want to make sure that the industry is not getting a bad rap. So on your journey to finding your right team, I really would be saying, especially on your first project, much like any new project, Get your two and three quotes per whatever. 
your driveway, your drainage, your fencing, your concrete, and even your builders. You're going to talk to many. So yes, do your due diligence and research. And I, I'm hearing what you're saying. Websites can look sexy and fantastic and be absolutely wrong. Maybe ask to speak to previous clients. If it's something that you can see, like a driveway, ask, is there anything in the neighborhood I can drive past and have a look at? I, I think these things are pretty important, especially when it's your first. I've got a great team of trades and consultants, fantastic, except that one engineer, I won't use him again. You're already moving forward to your next project, should you choose to, with a well-equipped with ammunition and an arsenal of people around you. But you just know you need to then ask those friends, mm. those advisors, who they would suggest next. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And we do that. But anyhow, I guess the good thing was, this was not my first gig. I'd done other developments. It's fine, but they're recommended to you from a senior consultant like it's difficult isn't it it's a hard pill to swallow i hear well, you i always think you're better to go with their team because mm. they're working with them all the time they've got a rhythm so that, that was interesting and i haven't really made up my mind how i would approach it next time there will be a next time so we'll mm. see we're thinking that we might do our next project something similar in newcastle in victoria bernadette give me a call i'll meet you on- <laughs> We'll have a look. We may well do. You never know where I'm going to pop up. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Okay. The other thing that people need to know in terms of cost is when you create a new block, yes, it does have GST implications, but it also has contribution costs. Yeah. And they can vary depending on Shire again. So one into two isn't always in our area, in my experience, doesn't always bring significant contribution costs. I'm doing one into three at the moment for myself, where I've got an original home on a thousand square meter block. We've got two we're about to kick off on in the rear. And the council contribution for private open space, I'll explain this in a moment, is actually, I think it's $25,000 or $30,000 for the development. This is one example, and this will change from state to state and shire to shire, but it is more commonly seen throughout the country now where shires are bending to the pressure of allowing smaller blocks, more homes, not quite medium density, but they're allowing more. In my experience in the area, if I did one into two, it wouldn't be required. One into three, I've triggered it and its costs. So that means that the minimum block size is now reduced. And again, in our shire or in my example, we need to provide a certain amount of private open space. So a certain square meterage is a minimum requirement. Now, if we don't meet that, the cost of our contribution goes up to Their definition is that the cost that they gain from us is to go to creating the private open or public open space. So that money goes towards the council or the shire to contribute to the parklands, reserves and all those sorts of things. It's interesting that you don't cop it for one into two. We have, but not in all. In the past, I haven't. No, I've had a couple where I've not had any contribution costs. Wow. I'll be honest, it's becoming more and more common. It is something, you're right, that should be considered. So not only your applications for town planning, you've got uh, conveyancing costs, you've got subdivision costs, you've got land surveying costs, as well as perhaps your town planners or any other engineers. That's even before you do anything on the block. So yeah, there are some cost implications. And as you highlighted to the speaking to a good accountant, really before you confirm your strategy, because if you're Basing your strategy on your feasibility and your return on investment sounds great when you think you're going to make 100 grand or 300 grand, and we can and we do. When the tax man takes half of that, that's a little bit of a hard pill to swallow. If you can hold it for a certain amount of time, you're in Victoria anyway, your capital gains tax implications change. And again, I'll state here, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not giving anyone personal advice. Speak to your accountants about this. However, 
the capital gains um, tax obligations change. For instance, if you've held the property for a one year, you're going to save 50% of the 50% capital gains. So you're saving 25% tax on it if you do need to sell it after a year. And also one example I have, Bernadette, is the one into three. I was looking to sell one off the plan, keep two. And the long-winded conversation I've had with my accountant about how crazy and difficult it is because as myself or my entity will keep one as an investment, I'm claiming the GST and charging GST on that, which means then me personally now needs to be registered for GST for one property, but not as the owner of the property next door. It basically means that not only is the project dealt with as a project, they're dealt with separately and now me personally, as well as the entity I hold it in, as well as my partner. It's, it's a real minefield. So I'm not saying this to scare anyone. I'm just suggesting it's a time you need to speak to a good accountant. And one of the best bit of feedback I had many years ago, because I've been in property for years, was why would you go to an accountant who doesn't already have more property than you? Exactly. My wealth creation vehicle and I love property. I love playing the game and I'm reasonably good at it. It's helped me get to where I am. And the other thing is you might be missing out on opportunities. Like if you hold the property for a certain amount of time, you can not have to pay GST. So understanding those nuances in the tax law. There's one I'd love to share quickly, Bernadette. And the same project, I'm now not selling one off the plan. We're building two to keep two, but I'm actually going to sell once I get to that point. I'll, I'll be selling the front existing house. The benefit of me doing that is that there is no GST component attached to it because it's existing. Just by getting the advice and changing my theory and mindset, I still get to keep what I was planning to keep. Yeah. Selling one, but I'm now no longer going to be paying GST on the sale of one of those things. Now that, I mean, will be something of 40 to 60, or probably actually 50 to $70,000 worth. If you can consider that kind of money coming out of your profit, at the end of the job, it's massive and life-changing. I think the icing on the cake is for anyone looking to hold or keep the, the property itself, whether it be for the one year to save on capital gains or because it's part of your retirement fund, a wealth creation vehicle, whatever it may be, any new home also, again, I'm not a financial advisor, but any new home and you keep, you get to look at the seven year, first seven years of depreciation and those depreciation costs are absolutely significant. So yeah. again, don't want to confuse people, but... If you can just get the grasp of one or two of these theories by talking to a great accountant, it will probably help you get more confidence and also maybe help you cement in which path you take. That's awesome. So basically, I think the, the moral to the story is build an expert team that if you're planning to go down that path, that's yeah, pretty so. much the long and the short of it, isn't it? Be really clear on your strategy. Build that team who can talk to you about the strategy you're employing Maybe even the team who can also consult with you about a different strategy should you need to bounce ideas off people. I think that's really important. If, for instance, people are wanting to go ahead with the build, just one note I, I wrote here is worth considering. Obviously, you're going to look and talk to builders about what do you get for your home. But just in regards to finance, whether it be a bank loan looking at a construction loan, they like to package everything up with a builder. They don't want you painting the house because yeah. they don't want to give you money if it's not going to the builder. So the extension of that is just being clear with any conversations you have from a package point of view from a builder. Some will do a turnkey, some won't. What that turnkey usually means a full service everything. So are they including your letterbox and clothesline? Sounds crazy, but normally the banks now ask them to do so because it means there's nothing left undone. Are they doing your boundary fences or side fences? That's always a question mark. And there could be three or $4,000 at the end of the job. And you're saying, 
What do you mean I'm building a fence? Oh, I thought you were doing it. Landscaping is a really big one. Just in regards to is it going to be required? It's also somewhat, sometimes where the banks are happy for them not to be included and, and you and your partner might be able to do it on settlement. That's a way you can save three or four or five thousand dollars. So if you can have a little bit of awareness around those options and then you can choose a type of lending for the type of project for the type of builder, it means you're in the driver's seat. And- that is actually an important topic. So with the construction loan, you have to show a builder's contract to actually get the loan so you don't get the money in your bank to pay out. And the bank pays progress payments based on valuation. Basically what you're saying is be really aware of the fact that if you're planning to take it to lockup or whatever, what's the non-turnkey project called? It would still be a full home. Yeah. So there's not a lot of difference, but a turnkey, standard terminology, turnkeys are everything. Yeah. Some banks and maybe a construction loan might allow it to be the structure. They may not demand that the driveway is included. They may not need the fencing or the gardening, the landscaping, the letterbox, those sorts of things. I guess what I'm saying is you... It's also why you want to know what the builder's doing for you. Yeah. You know, has the builder included the driveway or has he just done the slab in the garage? Are they doing the footpath to your front door? Because that's what's on the plan, but it's not in the contract. So some of those are just really worth ironing out and, and understanding. But to go back to your point, it's and I'm just like your listeners, I'm always battling to get finance and talking to lenders and banks and brokers and for the next project. And they keep moving the goalposts all the time. But to understand what is available to you in that lending model, will also dictate ultimately what you have to package up with a builder. And so you need to ensure that your builder has that information and adequate allowances or adequate fixed prices in there for you. Yeah, awesome. And something we didn't talk about when we were back talking about development is that listeners should be aware that if you are building like more than three, I think it is, anyhow, check with your finance expert that you're not talking about a normal loan then, you're talking about something that's more commercial. Yeah, so when you get to building three items on a block, so I'm facing that at the moment, it goes to commercial lending, which means it changes your LVR, it changes your terms, it changes the interest rate. I think if we get back to the, the cruts of the conversation today, Bernadette, for those people looking to dabble in their first projects, I'm strongly suggesting consider one Consider subdividing and selling the land. You'll get a buzz. You'll get some money in your pocket for the next one. Build your portfolio that way. Build your resources. So there's a few things that really will help your listeners take that first step with a bit more confidence. And what I hope for them is they don't do it blindly. So many do. And you hear these stories. And and you also then hear those other success stories of, wow. And I guess my question out loud to anyone out there is, what's the difference between case one and case two? Yeah. It's do your due diligence, build the right team, and take the time to learn so that you can do it confidently and make sure you've got the right people behind you. Yeah, I think we can sum it up in one word. It's preparation. Yeah. Listen, I think we've done justice to the topic. So I really appreciate you coming on. You're clearly a wealth of information in that area. And we will include your details in the notes in case anyone in Victoria, although I hear you don't need any work at the moment. We're a growing, successful small business. We've got a great team, but we love it. We don't really say no too much. And I think um, our growth is testament to the greater culture yeah. and the of our people. And we love to help. So whether we can build for you or do, feel free to give us a shout. We've got in-house designers, draft people, and, and we don't have to design it for you. Even if you've got something aboard a project with plans or 
you've got something underway and you just need advice, we'd love to chat. We'd love to give you some advice. No strings attached. We'd like to see more successful developers and, and um, property owners out there building wealth. Great. Listen, that's a wrap. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is the She Renovates podcast. To discover how to harness the power of renovating, check out theschoolofrenovating.com. Well, that's this week's episode done and dusted. And next week I'm going to be covering a topic that came from you. So it was a request made in the She Renovates Facebook page and it's the whole conversation around whether to renovate or detonate. Is your property worth renovating or should you consider demolishing it and starting again? So some factors that go into making that decision. And before I go, if you're not a member of our free Facebook group, why don't you come across and join? Then join into the conversation that helps to inform the topics that I cover in this podcast. So that's it for me today. Have a great week and I'll see you next week. This is the She Renovates podcast. To discover how to harness the power of renovating, check out theschoolofrenovating.com.